This is the SFF Audio Podcast. Hi, I'm Jesse. I'm Jenny. I'm Eric. We're talking about Like Water for Chocolate by Laura Esquivel. <laughs> this is the only book I've read of hers. This is a magic realism novel. Mm-hmm. And I almost hated it, but I actually do like it quite a lot. What did you guys think of this book? You've read it before, both of you, right? Right. Yes. And I reread it again this morning between 12.30 and 2.30. And I, wow. <laughs> I liked it more this time. Like I was reading through my review last time. And uh-huh. I was really angry about some things that I didn't yeah. feel as upset about this time around, and I'm not sure what the difference is. I think, yeah, I I was upset with characters, and I was upset with the 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 plot. I was upset with a lot of things, and I was, and I also I felt really stupid. Oh, really? I didn't get it. It's like, where's the fantasy? And it like, it's like just doesn't. I was like, why are all these strange things happening? I'm not understanding. And then I went and I did a little research and I said, oh, okay, I see what's happening here. And then I went back and re-listened to parts and uh makes a lot more sense now. And I, I can appreciate the book a lot more. I'm not sure it's still my favorite book or anything, but you know, Eric, you, know, you suggested this book, right? I did. I, I, I love the book. And uh, I've used it in class in my fantasy course uh, many times. And uh, I've never had a student say that he or she disliked the book, and I've had many who said that they absolutely adored it. Um, mm-hmm. so, well, let I'm, us be negative for you. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Yeah, no, no, it's okay. But it occurs to me uh, that, that you, your reaction, Jesse, is uh, it, it's sort of in line with one of the... Uh, the aspects of the public understanding of magical realism that mm-hmm. most of the world finds so, so weird. Um, with Gabriel Gar- Garcia Marquez, I, I, I may get the Spanish wrong because I speak with a Castilian accent and these people are all <laughs> South Americans, so I apologize. Uh, I keep lapsing back into Castilian pronunciation. But anyway, um, Gabriel Garcia Marquez um, has claimed that magical realism is in fact just realism. Mm. Um, that uh, if you grew up as he did, and I, I mean, Garcia, he's the guy who's best known for the genre, and uh, his his book, 100 Years of Solitude, is sort of the locus classicus of magical realism. Um, and he's asked, you know, what, what does it mean? Why do you write this strange way? And he says... Mm-hmm. If you grew up the way I grew up and all of the people around me, this is how the world looks. This is not mm-hmm. fantasy. This is realism. And, of course, you know, we gringos uh, say, no, no, he's just pulling our leg. He's an author who's just lying about it. This can't be true. Or if it's true, it can only be true in a metaphorical sense. But I think, in a way, Jesse, your response that, uh, well, where's the fantasy in this? I mean, obviously, yeah. you know that having a woman burst into flame during sex, um, you know, uh, this is, this is not normal, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, it's weird. It's not, it's not, there's no connection to reality. Exactly. Right? And having somebody cook for years 
with the dried salt from her amniotic fluid. This, yeah. this, this is this is something that was ten pound bag. It's a ten pound bag of salt. Exactly. You know. So you knew that there were things going on in here that, if they occurred in a certain context, you certainly would have said, "Oh well, there's the fantasy." So the fact that you you kind of said to yourself, "Well, what's fantastic here?" Maybe you're making Garcia Marquez's point. That is, you're suggesting that there's a whole different way to look at the world, and that world is no less real than the world that you think you know. It wasn't that sophisticated. No, no, no. I'm not saying that you're saying it. I shouldn't have used that verb. But maybe the response that you're having to this as a realistic novel, despite having these things in it, is bearing up that point. I was thinking... I was thinking it's, it's, it's more like, okay, something strange is happening, but it seems to happen for no reason. And I, I, I know why they're happening now. Now that I've gone in, I, I read, okay, here's Spark Notes, chapter one. I read <laughs> Spark Notes and they say, okay, here's what happens in this chapter. And then the explanation somebody has come up with, some anonymous person who writes Spark Notes says, you know, this symbolizes this. And I'm like, oh, Okay, I'm not so stupid anymore. Because what would happen is, this book is kind of special in that the, well, maybe it's not kind of special, but the, in this respect, it's just that what would happen is Tita would make some food and then people would eat the food. And the reaction uh, of the people to eating the food would symbolize, uh, would, would externalize her her feelings or some situation that that was happening and 11 and times like, out of 12 yeah and, and one I, time she doesn't make food she makes matches right and 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 yeah that it, but even so like like the chickens and like what would happen is there would be a, like a time lapse in between the the making of the food and then the eating of the food and there would be some sort of story that's sort of not directly connected to the the two events and it would be like a piece of of internal family history or something like that um uh, you know a more soap opera style plot and i would sort of become distracted trying to understand what's happening in the soap opera style plot and then suddenly all this weird stuff would happen and i was like oh like as soon as i unlock this key of like okay because it doesn't say anywhere in the text exactly. Here's what's happening, Jesse. <laughs> <laughs> well, 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 it's very I, connected I, to emotion, too. I mean, yeah. And I'm, I'm not like I, I kept thinking. Like the first time I, I was reading, I was like, "Oh, this is a girl book. This is a girl book. This is a girl <laughs> because it's all about girls. Girls talking about relationships." And yeah, it is. It's totally a. This is the most girly book ever. It's a feminist book. It's a it's a womanhood book. It's a birthing book. It's a cooking book. All these things that I am not experienced well with or not super interested in or all these things that are sort of disconnected from my regular fantastic reality. And, <laughs> and what would happen is I, I was just trying to make the connections between everything and it was not, it wasn't working. But as soon as I got this idea, from reading a spark notes it's like reading shakespeare and not understanding it and then you you get this one thing here's what this one thing is doing and then you say aha what was the and one thing that was a key for you with it. what was the one thing that was a key for you 
Uh, it was. It was reading the Spark Notes. No, 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 no. What, what did they say in the Spark Notes? Uh, <laughs> uh, let's see if it's. It, I'll, I'll just pick. Uh, how about May? May, chapter five. So, Tita's confrontation with Mama Elena marks the first time that Tita is able to assert her beliefs. Though she does not do so from a position of weakness in the moment of the tremendous anguish, her grief at learning of Roberto's death inspires Tita to make to challenge Mama Elena's cruelty, and and so uh, 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 maybe this isn't the right one, but there was one in which uh, the chickens, right? Yes, that's a, that's a that's a good one. Okay, let me let me remember the chickens. So she goes she. There's some leftover food. She she feeds it to the chickens. I, I'm not sure if the other people ate it or I don't think they did. She she feeds it to the chickens and then she goes and does something else. And then when she comes back, there's like all the chickens are pecking each other and tearing each other's eyes out. And then there's some diapers hanging on the clothesline and the diapers are getting bloody from all the chicken eyes being popped. And then there's and a then chicken tornado. Chickens turns into... <laughs> which opens up the earth follows all but three of the chickens and I was like what the hell's happening and then I was saying wait a second three there's three chickens left and there's three sisters right there's very good only- you know any other given the day that we're taping this um, know any other good trinities <laughs> hmm is that do you think that's also in there because this well if I recall correctly, I didn't get to reread the book because I don't read books in an hour and ten minutes the way Jenny does, and I am envious. Two hours. Oh, this time you were going slowly. I know you, Jenny. <laughs> I, I, I'm still envious. Um, if I, but if my re- memory is correct, Tita's name and Tita's clearly the main character in this book. Tita's name is given her real name is given only once. Mm-hmm. And you, when when the baby is getting named, and what is her name? Remember? Uh, no, it was a strange one though. It's not related to Tita. Tita is like a nickname or well, something, right? Well, Tita, Tita. Okay, so here's here's for any anyone who doesn't know any Spanish, Tita is the diminutive of Tia. Tia means aunt, and Tita okay. just means it's just like a little affectionate, like Antela, you know, my little <laughs> auntie. Right, mm-hmm. so she's known as Tita the or whole. Jessela, as I'm known on as Easter. exactly, Jessela. exactly. That's just a Yiddish, a Yiddish diminutive. Mm-hmm. So, her real name is Josefita, which, if you were reading it in English, you but didn't know Spanish, you would read it as Josefita. And Josefita, like Tita, is a diminutive. In this case, it is a diminutive of Josef. That is, her real name is Little Joseph. And if mm. I remember correctly, Joseph is the one who doesn't really serve as a biological parent to Jesus, mm. but in fact has the role of a parent to Jesus mm-hmm. and raises him, protects him, and everything else. Yeah, that's right. And so if you take a look at this in terms of, of Christian imagery, it the book is rife with it from from her name on. I mean, we have... <laughs> Does that make Mama Elena God, or, or uh, well, now that's interesting. Mama Elena is obviously God. wants to be God, yeah. right? She wants to be God. Um, my Spanish is only acquired, you know, secondhand. But I, I, I asked about uh, 
the 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 word Garza. I mean, they're, they're, Garza means heron, and uh, and I was wondering, you know, given the dove and stuff for um, for uh, the Holy Ghost, I was wondering what the different images might mean. Figuring that a book that's this carefully designed would have all kinds of things in it, and so uh, a friend of mine who is in fact Spanish um, wrote to me that um, Garza, and I'm quoting from this woman named Anapano, Garza can be applied to a woman with malice in her heart. Mm. Es una Garza, es una mujer mala. She's a, she's a heron, she is a bad woman. But mm. she says, I forgot to tell you that this also can be either a woman with no ethical or moral standing. Right? Mm. Also, or, yeah. okay. Also, it turns out that there is a traditional proverb, aunque la garza vuela muy alta, although the heron flies higher, el halcón la mata, the um, the falcon kills it. So the Spanish proverb is suggesting that. This the Garza, the 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 heron, um, is a high flyer. In terms of a woman, it's an ethically bad person, but one needs to know that ultimately there is a downfall for this individual. Um, and uh, I find it also kind of interesting that that the 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 bird that you would expect here. I mean, you talked about the chickens and there is the, the wedding cake that's made by getting together all of the, the 70 eggs. Exactly. Yeah. But first you have to make them into capons, right? I mean, they talk about castration. They talk about getting rid of sexuality. Um, the, the word you would expect with all of this birthing going on is, is grua stork, mm. but there are no storks here. This is mm. all, symbolically um, working with with evil and ethical lapses and the only person who really functions 100% well for the family is is Tita um, and, and there are so uh, that her name is not given except that one time when she <laughs> is supposed to take on a religious role stand in a, you know as godmother um, is I think crucial that she's always pushed to the side, yet she, like Joseph, is the one who is crucial in the raising of the child. And Esperanza means hope, you know, and so that's that's the child that she raises. And mm. indeed, Esperanza marries Alex, I suppose, the conqueror of the world, um, who is John Brown's son. And so although John Brown wasn't able to to get Tita to marry him, his son is able to marry her metaphorical daughter and so it is possible to have a world a modern world where we've gone away from the violence of the mexican revolution and the violence of these uncontrollable emotions and have an actual settled life where we can go back mm -hmm. to just making food to nourish people and honor those before us it seems to well, me that movement from of the violent incredible birth to that ultimate outcome of of hope and and forward movement is something that's mediated chapter by chapter by the discipline and the service 
that is incorporated in the recipes that Tita left behind. What do we need to make about the death of uh, the first the first child of Pedro and Rizura? Roberto is what the Wikipedia entry calls him. He, he's the one who is being nursed by Tita, and then they the mom says, "You're too close. You're ruining this child, or something." They send the the ch- child to go live in Texas. Exactly. And then and then he he dies of a lack of uh, uh, food. Well, you know, the word nurse and the word nourish come from the same Latin root. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, in uh, in a book by a guy named Max Luti, who was the professor of folklore at the University of Zurich, called Esval Einmal, Once Upon a Time, he makes this really brilliant point that in a true oral folktale, no one ever says, I love you. Mm. Instead, they just give them food. Mm-hmm. And what we see here is that even though a woman who has not been impregnated cannot produce milk, Tita miraculously is able to produce the appropriate nourishment for Roberto. When Rosaura is angry that her sister is producing the milk that she cannot, she removes Roberto from his right nourishment. And instead of being able to function as a wet nurse anymore, she has no use. Roberto doesn't have what he wants, and he dies. The fact that this happens in the United States is another aspect of the, the political part of the book. But the fact that he is without proper sustenance is parallel to one episode after another in the book. For example, Mama Elena, in a sense, killing herself by refusing sustenance by sneaking Ipecac in with the food. She's not willing to have the food from the hands that she doesn't want to touch. So the, the, the removal of sustenance is crucial. And the fact that Roberto could have survived, that Esperanza does survive, shows that Tita's sustenance really does sustain. I mean, she's the heroine of the book. Mm-hmm. So um, apparently uh, I was just actually earlier this week while I was reading this book, I, I read or heard something about... Um, Actually, it is possible for uh, non-childbearing uh, women to uh, lactate, but it's relatively rare. So that miraculous event that does happen is a little less miraculous than some of the other things that happen in this book. Yeah, you're, you're right, and I, I too Actually, have heard that it does sometimes happen. And yeah. The stimulation of the uh, can happen. Sim- the stimulation <laughs> of the sucking, sucking can sometimes bring that about, um, but it's. I mean, it's it's really, really rare. <laughs> well, I wanted to go back to something that you mentioned, Jesse, if you don't mind. Um, we were talking about how this is such a girly book. <laughs> and I was noticing that for a different reason. I've read a lot of authors that are similar to Esquivel. Um, uh, Urea, Isabel Allende. And in all of those books, including the Marquez books, women seem to have a different set of powers. You know, it's almost like they expect women to have some sort of magic, whether it's in the kitchen, the bedroom, or with the family. It's just not as surprising when they're able yeah. to turn things around and, you know, impact people or psychic ability or something like that. So I just think it's a, a theme in that genre in general, really. Yeah, um, I, I was reading about magic realism, and uh, it's kind of hard to define, um, but 
you sort of know it when you see it, I guess is the idea. Mm-hmm. Um, and in the massive Wikipedia entry on it, which I really enjoyed reading, um, it talked about one thing that really was important was that as opposed to surrealism or anything else, you know, magic realism is that nobody thinks that anything that is magical is strange in, in the story. So when this tornado happens, nobody's like, where the hell did that tornado come from? Is it some (laughs) sort of witch going around here? You know, like there's no recognition that the magic is magic. Right. It's just real. That's hence the term, right? Magic realism, realism as magic. But it's also not happening around the men, ever. Yeah, it seems to. Well, there's a little bit, I think. I'm. I wanted to talk about uh, John Brown. I think John Brown is kind of. Before we go on, if you don't mind, uh, I'd like to to throw in uh, maybe four cents about magical realism. my students and I worked out one day a few years ago, and it seems to me that they're kind of right. Um, that that uh, in magical realism, nobody acts as if it's not realism is correct. But there are two other genres in which that's also the case. One is true fairy tales. Mm-hmm. Right. Once you get into a fairy tale, no one is surprised when an animal talks. Right. I mean, that's just, you know, once you're in that world, why, you know, you just do it. Um, but the thing is that to get into that fairy tale world, you first have to say, well, I'm no longer in my world. So that's one distinction between fairy tales and uh, magical realism. The other genre in which you treat the fantastic as if it were real is science fiction. Right. You just. Hop on your time machine and away you go. Or you uh, happen to know how to do thus and such, and uh, and and you do it. Um, so the question then arose: What's the difference, or is there a difference, or at least one difference, between science fiction and magical realism? And it seems to me, uh, and it seemed to the class, uh, this: um, in in all fantastic works, one of the Reasons for, no, I shouldn't say reasons. One of the uses of the fantastic element is that it highlights something that actually matters in our world. So, for example, you know, fear of the other is expressed in the body of King Kong, just as a simple, mm. quick example. Um, and in science fiction, um, Frankenstein's monster uh, is the embodiment of um, a kind of narcissism that, when harnessed with new knowledge, um, is socially disruptive. Um, the a difference between magical realism and science fiction is that while science fiction provides metaphors, magical realism provides what. Um, you would call in the analysis of poetry conceits. That is, you know, my love is like a red, red rose. She has thorny legs. You just take the metaphor and keep extending it and extending it, and, and that's a conceit. And it seems to me that in, like, Water for Chocolate, food, which is treated magically, I mean, fantastically, that food... Um, 
becomes the the metaphor for the presentation of the self. And I'm using Irving Goffman's term from his famous book, The Presentation of Self in Everyday Life, how, you know, we are things and then we we function in, in the world by appearing, making ourselves to appear a certain way. Um, so Tita expresses herself. She, she appears in the world via her food. But it, it's not that food is just a metaphor for self-presentation. It's a conceit for self-presentation because it gets worked out in one instance after another all the way down to the chicken tornadoes. And it's that notion of continually changing and expanding and extending the metaphor is in fact quite different from traditional science fiction, where you get the fantastic element, you treat it as real, and then you extrapolate the rest of the narrative, assuming that that's a stable thing within the narrative. So magical realism, it seems to me, has a nice place, at least so my students and I were able to come to, to feel, a nice place that shares some of the aspects of fairy tale and some of the aspects of science fiction and then does something that's special all to itself. And, and I think like Water for Chocolate is actually one of the best examples of magical realism yeah. doing that. Yeah, I, it's it was shocking the change between, you know, the first reading where I, I'd seen the movie years ago and I just had forgotten, I guess. Like I remembered sort of some of the it's it's very striking when I rewatch the movie. It's very striking how faithful it is to the book. It doesn't have the chicken tornado, but it has a lot of it, it it compresses down a lot of the dialogue that's actually in the book and keeps a lot of the scenes. The the visualization there is like well, that just looks weird. But if you if you had read the book, like so, there's a scene where Tia is sent off to an insane asylum, uh, and in the in the movie you've got this uh, woman riding off on a cart and and uh, I guess it's Nacha. Is it not not just the sec the the serving maid or whatever? No, Chencha is I think the serving Chen, maid, and Nacha Chencha, is her yeah, is her teacher. Chencha, her cooking Chencha. teacher, I think. Yeah, Nacha's uh, already dead at that point. Nacha's dead, mm-hmm. but she keeps coming back. She's a ghost. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but uh, Chencha is has knit her a uh, I guess a blanket or something, and. In the movie, you see her riding off, and then you see, oh, it's a long blanket. And it just keeps going and going and going. And in the book, it says it's a kilometer long, right? But because it's just sort of, it's, it's mentioned, and then nobody says, wow, that was must have taken a long time. It just says, you know, she really, she knit all night, and she knit herself a whole thing. And, and it's like the way Jenny reads, you know. You, you <laughs> kind of don't believe it, but after a certain point, you accept it. <laughs> <laughs> Jenny, Jenny has magic realism when it comes to books. Well, I am a woman. Uh, yeah, clearly you're <laughs> super. <laughs> I can certainly tell you that my students uh, utterly concur on a statistical basis with what you said. Those people who saw the movie before having read the book all found it interesting, but somewhat disjointed and didn't know yeah. one thing or another was in there. Those who saw it after reading the book had the matrix within which that fidelity makes sense. And mm. they all thought it was a terrific movie. But it's really a terrific movie as a recapitulation of the book. Yes, yes, it's a reminder of what's ha- what happens in the book and a visualization of many of the, um, like when it says, uh, you know, they all run off to their cars and have sex, um, you know, it's just sort of, 
it there's no particular picture in your mind of this because you haven't seen all the people at the party suddenly, you know, grasping each other and fleeing the table and running towards the the parking lot. Right. Um, but it's actually, you know, you see, okay, you get see the smiles on their faces, you you get the idea. It it um it's not a super visualized version of the of you know, some writers are all about, you know, Ray Bradbury. It's all about the color and the texture. This book is, is more about, uh, I mean, it's distanced by the, it's all told as a remembrance by the grand, not grand nephew, grand niece, grand, the niece of the protagonist, right? It's the niece, or is it the grand niece? Anyways. Instead of visuals, it's aroma and flavor, and that just, doesn't mm-hmm. transmit on the it's screen. Good. I wish. No. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you get, you do, you do get quite hungry reading the book. There's a lot of uh, yummy flavors coming. But impossible flavors. Like I was looking through these recipes, yeah. like, okay, maybe I could make I one of these things. <laughs> I don't think they're. Uh, I mean, some sometimes the ingredients don't exist either. But yeah. yeah, so I wanted to talk about John Brown because I think John Brown is a very interesting character, and he does seem to have a little bit of the. The power of his 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 Indian grandmother mm-hmm. and uh, the Akikapu Indian grandmother, and he has such a great metaphor with the matches and how you can burn people mm-hmm. out. And mm-hmm. I so wanted her to fall in love with him. Oh, that's what pissed me off about this book is she she falls for a guy who yeah I guess he's he's stand up in the end, but he he turns he he's he's really jealous and stuff whereas John Brown's never jealous so if you look at the Wikipedia entry for this book, it says genre it says romance, and that's exactly what the plot of this book is right mm-hmm. It's a romance novel with magic realism, and I'm not a big romance novel fan, so those are my reservations but if I was critiquing this as a romance novel. I would be like, this is why women are bad, because they choose the wrong men. (laughs) I I disagree. I'm sorry. I think it is a romance among other things. Rosaura um, is is Golden Rose. The rose is the single most common icon in in painting for the Virgin Mary. Mm -hmm. Um, Pedro is Spanish for Peter, the rock upon whom I will build my church. Mm-hmm. The real mother of of hope, right, is is Josefita, is Tita. Mm-hmm. And she, in fact, like Tristana is old, is absolutely committed forever to the rock upon whom she will build her church. And so that Rosaura falls away and Pedro becomes the 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 man she sticks with seems to me built into the to the names but then you say oh but you know maybe he's a stand up guy but look at what he's doing well you know peter is the one who says um and look you know it's it's holy week now uh, peter is the one who says oh no no i would never do anything against you jesus and jesus says you'll die, deny me 3 times before the cock crows son of a gun we've got chickens in that story too 
But but John Brown's been iced out, and he's such a great guy. Well, I know he's he's been aced out, but what I'm saying is that the fact of, uh, you know, we all like that, because we like Tita, and we want her to find happiness. What I'm saying is the book isn't just a romance. It has other issues at stake, which include uh, what it means to be selfless, what it means to be... Uh, to to uh, be loyal, what it means to be reliable. John Brown, well, John Brown is of mixed blood, right? He has this Indian grandmother, and so mm-hmm. he is in touch with things in a way that not all gringos would be. John Brown has the name of a white man who is famous for having taken up the cause of black men, who right, who tried to foment revolution to free slaves in the United States, right? John Brown is not just any name. So John Brown in this story comes south from the United States. And this particular John Brown brings with him a a genetic um, kind of sympathy for native elements, elements that go back even before um, Spanish Mexicans, like the de la Garza family. Now, why is it that Mama Elena is such a twisted up bitch, right? Why is it she hates her own children? Well, we find out that her oldest child, Gertrudis, which means spear of strength, right? And she's the one who participates in the revolution, mm-hmm. that Gertrudis is actually illegitimate. She is the child of Mama Elena and this beautiful man who was himself of mixed blood, which is why her parents wouldn't let him marry her marry him. So she had to marry this other guy, this de la Garza, instead. So Mama Elena has a mixed blood child in Gertrudis. She's the one who spearheads, spear of strength, the revolution from the woman's standpoint. What we see here is a story of racial prejudice at the political and personal level that's both in the United States and in Mexico. And finally, finally, through the the marriage of Alex, who is John Brown's son and therefore also of mixed blood, though to a lesser degree, and um, uh, Esperanza, who has this virtual mother uh, in Tita, we see a way of getting past those divisions. This is a. This isn't just a romance. There yeah. Oh, I know. I, 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 on one level, it is a romance, but yeah. on the romance level, all the stuff you said is absolutely right. It's and it's and it's awesome. But on a romance level, she chose the wrong guy. Like if this was a, if I've read a Harlequin romance, right? And uh, sometimes they choose the bad boy. But she didn't choose him. That's why I mentioned made the reference to Tristan Isolde. You know, Tristan is bringing Isolde back to be the bride for King Mark. And by accident, the two of them share the drinking of a love potion. It's magical realism, right? They drink a love potion and bammo, they have to love each other and nobody else forever. And that's Mm. the beginning of the problem. You know, in the English language version of the book, there's an epigraph and it says, to the table or to bed. You must come when you are bid. And that's not bad, but I, I brought with me uh, the, the Spanish version of the book. And in the Spanish version of the book, the epigraph, let me see if I can find it here. The epigraph uh, is, 
It's not on the page. Um, the epigraph, no, that's already chapter one. Where did the epigraph go? Yes. A la mesa y a la cama, right? To the table and to the bed, una sola vez se llama. One time only is one called. Mm. Slightly different. Oh, yeah. What the, the Spanish version is like Tristan and Isolde. When you get called, that's it. That is your destiny. So and maybe Pedro should have listened the first time because, <laughs> I mean, no, he was a coward. Yeah, exactly. there was a scene where there was a scene where they watched Rosara ride off on top of that horse in a very sexy way with the with the man who had call, been called from the battlefield or wherever he was. Gertrudis. To, so that's Gertrudis. Yeah, Gertrudis. Gertrudis is called, uh, she's, she's burning with fire and covered in pink sweat and all that stuff. And then, and then this, we, we start hearing about the narrator says that there's this hero on the battlefield and he runs away from the battle. He doesn't know why. His horse doesn't know why they're riding this way and they pick her up and ride off in a very sexy manner. And at that moment, Tita is, uh, standing on the porch with, with, uh, Pedro and he sticks, his hand in hers and she's about to she says at that moment uh if pedro had said let's uh, let's run away together they would have and he doesn't he was he doesn't say that he wants to but he doesn't and and so all the subsequent uh you know uh problems are attributed to his weakness (laughs) in one reading and he's selfish because he takes her virginity, which most people would call rape. And, um, you know, it was too little too late, in my opinion. I don't think that's romantic. I think that that ruined her life. She should have had this loving relationship. She could have. She had the potential for it. I, I don't know why he I don't know why he, she likes him at all, because he, he's just a he's a stick figure of a person. He, he doesn't have all, all we know is that he likes her. And that, you know, he, he's not particularly interested in his wife. The heart has reasons that... Re- <laughs> <laughs> he's handsome, I guess. And John Brown in the movie, he's not as handsome as, as the handsome Pedro. But uh, John Brown is the... He, I mean, if this is a romance novel, just a romance novel, not a... Uh, that, and that's the... I admit, this is the first way I read it. It was, okay, I'm going to get through this novel and it's going to be a romance and I'm going to appreciate it for a, a, being a romance. And then she chooses the wrong guy and, and then they both burn to death. Um, I would say John Brown got the, the bad deal and she chose wrongly because he, I mean, he saved her, right? He saved her okay. in that uh, along with, uh, with, I want to say Nacha, but that's not right. That's the other one. Ten, chencha, chencha, chencha. Chencha and the oxtail soup. soup. Right. <laughs> And Chencha's story is actually pretty pretty good because I think she she's sort of an example of a person who is not uh, screwed up the way the whole rest of the family or she's not really part of the family she has her own family right she's not screwed up the way that family is. Well, and to be fair, Tita was er, she learned early on that Pedro was affected by her cooking, and yeah. she continued to intentionally cook. There's this one quote I love that. Um, that was the way she entered Pedro's body, hot, voluptuous, perfumed, mm. totally sensuous. That was with the quails yeah. and the rose petal sauce. They entered each other's body is, is I think, the way it, it was eventually put, right? Mm-hmm. 
And that's sort of a, I mean, the other way to look at this book is that it's a super feminist book. You know, it's about the, the rise of feminism and, you know, sort of why does, why is it she has to say, wait for him to say, let's run away? Why doesn't she say, hey, let's run away? Like her older sister does, you know? Hmm. I mean, uh, the, the older sister story, the, I want to say Rosara. It's not what's what's Gertrudis the Gertrudis is the oldest. Gertrudis, Gertrudis. When she runs away, she sort of becomes this general, and she comes away with a lot of fantastic war stories. And you know, I, I love the scene with her and the sergeant trying to. There, there's a like an extended part where he's trying. He he wants her to. She wants him to look up something in the recipe book. And he can barely read. <laughs> and they're trying to figure out how to, when, when the food gets into the ball stage, you can tell because of, you know, a certain thing because she, it's, it's just a, a, a very nice diversion, but just her in charge of that whole military that apparently doesn't need to be fed. <laughs> Another fantastic element, like the loaves and the fishes, I guess. It's never, I, I was just thinking the second time, is like, wait a second, where did all the food come from for the, that army that shows up on the back porch? Well, it exhausted their stores completely for the year, all the food that had it's stored up. Even so, even <laughs> so, I mean, it's just a family farm, right? It's not like there's 40... 50 ranch hands around there. But you know, this whole feminism thing, that whole idea, it doesn't start to happen until the mother goes away. <laughs> she needs to go away for sure. Oh my goodness. And and that's actually, uh, there's a, a scene in the movie that I thought it was so, I, I watched the original one I watched years and years ago was the just regular uh, subtitled one. But the, the American uh, dubbed version is the one I watched yesterday, and there was a scene where the the ghost of Mama Elena shows up, and she shows up a few times, but she shows up, and and the daughter gets really mad at her mom and says, "Surprise! I hate you." <laughs> <laughs> like, what a great line! It's just sort of it's sort of a, like a compressed version of that scene in the book where she says, uh, you know, mom, I can live without you and uh, you were bad for us and go away and she disappears forever, right? Hmm. She, that's her assertion of her her own destiny over the horrible destiny that her mom wanted her to have. And she had to say that to her ghost because even her ghost would not leave her alone. <laughs> yeah, I, I've, all, I've always supposed that, uh, I, I should say I inferred and have never... Um, resisted this inference that there is no such tradition of the youngest daughter having to take care of the mother. It's just something that this this withered, bitter woman has concocted. Well, she says it's a family tradition. Well, she but, says it is, but we yeah. don't know of any yeah. earlier member, generation of the family in which it ever happens. That's right. And it's, it's in nobody else's family. So, you know, how, how did this happen? It seems to me she's just said it that she continue she can continue to exercise domination over a world that did not allow her the opportunity to find the love that she wanted. She actually had love. She yeah. had the right guy. It was in fact a love that bore fruit. In fact it bore strong fruit. Gertrudis. Mm-hmm. But but she lived in a world that did not allow it. 
And like Tita, she was allowed, she allowed herself to be dominated by her parents. Yeah. And I changed yeah. that Tita needs to say to her mother, no, you're wrong. I deny this. And if she has to keep saying it to the mother that lives on in her super ego uh, by talking to a ghost, I'm sorry for her, but more power to her for trying it. The the book is not just a girly book, it seems to me, and I don't mean to be critical here. It is, of course, a book for girls, but the kind of power that people can have over each other because loyalty is given and expected, because nourishment is given and life is given and received, um, those are gorgeous, wonderful, beautiful things, but they are also sometimes unbreakable bonds. And the book is about that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, one of the other problems I had was all the racism that is, you know, just sort of naturally accepted. But even so, it's it shouldn't be. But we all the characters like the characters are not expressing themselves in the way they want to. They're expressing the way in many cases, the way they are uh sort of their representations of sort of whole classes of people. Um And the mom is racist but she you know she she secretly loves this guy and and when the daughter is uh, Gertrudis right mm-hmm. it's Gertrudis she's dancing i was like everybody in the family says you know where she got that great dancing ability i i know <laughs> it's like i'm like what Why <laughs> and, oh, come on okay fine whatever you know it, and this is kind of um representative of something that you it bothered me during one of the times I read it but not so much this time because I think I understand it more and that is that the world that they create in their home and in their small little circle has so much more power and meaning for them than the world around them so of course there's racism built into that there's also a war going on that you almost never hear about it's like little <laughs> flung away details but like yeah I, I got raped <laughs> yeah, the entire reason that Tita is home with her sister when she has the child and she's all alone is because they're being detained by soldiers. I mean, yeah. um, it's a pretty significant revolution, but you wouldn't, you, I guess you wouldn't know it for how it figures into the story. And the first yeah. time that bothered me, the second time I, I kind of understood it. Yeah. It works. It's, it, it was the second time going through, I was thinking, okay, the, the revolution is happening sort of within the people too, and they don't know about it. In the same way that the war is, oh yes, it's there, but um, uh, how did it resolve itself? Right? I think is it changed stuff. things? It changed things, but did it change things uh, for the much for the better? Well, it changed things. <laughs> you know, right? I, th- I think that's a brilliant insight that the, the, the people are paying attention to daily activity, to quotidian activity, and not noticing the, the, the revolution in themselves, just as they are not, unless reminded of it, noticing the revolution outside themselves. But that correspondence between the individual and the, the public, um, it seems to me, is also part of what the book is about. You know, we're, we're North Americans, but, I mean, United Statesians, but it's hard <laughs> and to... Canadians. And a Canadian, right, and a Canadian. It's hard to believe that a Mexican reading this book would not be much more palpably aware throughout the reading that this is the period of the revolution. And we see the revolution um, in these glancing details, but as you said, Jenny, they are enormously important details. 
I mean, you talk about the, the, the stereotypical racism that flows through this. It's the Chinamen who are yeah. able to continue to shuttle between the north and the south in Mexico, make a profit at each end. And, you know, you could say, well, that's terrible. But on the other hand, that's where they managed to get the, the lace to make the bridal gown that ultimately makes a train that we see in the very end. You know, I mean, it's it's these these different elements do find a place and manage like the different ingredients of a well cooked dish. If they get done right, they make something new and satisfying. Uh, it seems to me that the food metaphor and the use of the recipes um, in many ways reinforces the notion of how the individual needs to fit into the larger. And you see, for instance, when they when they when we first see a dinner and we see this a couple of times, we're told that there is an etiquette book and everyone has to follow the rules of the etiquette book. But the last time we see the etiquette book being mentioned, it's when Tita has made these wonderful, wonderful uh, chilies. Uh, these, uh, these uh, oh gosh, with well, enchiladas, I guess. And she's got them covered with three different sauces, a green one, a white one, and a red one. And we're reminded explicitly that this is the flag of Mexico. This is Mexico mm-hmm. post-revolution. Now, at that point, at that point, she act, it's possible for a woman to ask if it's all right for her to have the last enchilada in the plate. Whereas previously it had been forbidden because we all had to follow the, the, the etiquette book that gets mentioned. This time it's okay because in this new, more integrated world, these understandings that women have of the importance of the intimate relation of individual to individual is now beginning to appear more broadly in the public sphere. Racism is being overcome. And if you take a look at the, the flag of Mexico, you know, with its green, white, and red. I don't know if you, you can picture the flag of Mexico, but in the middle of that vertical white stripe, there is an emblem from Chinatihuacan. It's the plumed, it's the, it's the eagle with the, uh, with the snake in its mouth standing on the, the cactus. It is the mythical story of the discovery of the finding of the swampy area that ultimately becomes Ciudad de Mexico, right? The city of Mexico, now Mexico City. So that story is a story of magical realism. But look around, my fellow Mexicans, the author implicitly is saying, we live in this world. This is our world. And so the the process of overcoming these distinctions and artificial restrictions and stereotyping it gets mediated through food, but I think this is a book that is very, very much about politics and 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 cultural relations and the divisions and uh, beliefs that constitute a society. I, I think it's a, it's a brilliant book. It just looks like it's a book about this one strange woman with cooking powers. <laughs> right, and the author doesn't spell it out for us because we aren't. We Americans aren't the audience she wrote it for. I mean, the people who were reading the novel in the beginning would have had that background already. So, I mean, I didn't even know which revolution it was. I had to go kind of digging. <laughs> it's the early. It's the one with um, with the famous <laughs> the, the famous raider of the Americans. I'm trying to remember his name now. Damn Zapata. 
Zapata. Uh, yeah, Zapata's not, he's not the one, uh, it's the one, he raids the United States a couple of times and, uh, Pershing has to chase him down into Mexico. Oh. Damn it. Oh well. Um, the, uh, yeah, the Mexican flag, um, you know, uh, in the movie, uh, very prominently displayed, uh, and the acting's great and such, but, uh, the, 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 the burning of the house at the end is so... Pancho so Villa. Big. Yeah, Pancho Villa, of course, Pancho Villa. Sorry. The burning of the house at the end is super fake, but the movie looks great otherwise, right? All these magic realism elements are pretty well portrayed because they're, they're sort of, they happen to people rather than, I guess that's why they didn't have the chicken tornado. It would have been hard to visualize. They used a model to burn the house down, and it looked like I could have done a better job with the model burning the house down. But uh, what I did notice when you're talking about, you know, this is about Mexico, is the movie is actually was produced by the Mexican Tourist Board, right? It was designed to uh, paint, make people, you know, want to come visit Mexico. And, wow, it makes, it makes you want to go to a Mexican restaurant at least, right? <laughs> Yeah, the food is good. Very least. You know, you, you remind me of something else here. Um, uh, this notion that uh, you know it, it's a bad choice romantically, and you know, at the end, the Pedro and Tita just burn to death. I think there's another way to look at it, and and on Sun on Easter Sunday, it's it's not a bad way to look at it. I mean, you could say, you know, Jesus, um, Jesus was God. I mean, that's one of his three parts. And he must have known, therefore, that when he went to uh, to the earth, he, he would, uh, in fact, die. In fact, that's what they say, that he so loved us that he gave his only begotten son. Right. So he knew that he was going to die. This is the, from a human standpoint. This looks like a bad choice. Right. But from the standpoint of Christianity, the resurrection is the promise of eternal life for everybody. It's the happiest, greatest thing that can happen. Instead of looking at, at, at Tita and Pedro's final occurrence on this earth as burning to death, we could look at it as apotheosis. And what is left after they are done, what looks like ashes, in fact becomes the the pavement it becomes they're a phoenix <laughs> it's, it's the ground well it's the ground out of which modern mexico arises they yeah. live through the through the ashes this is all they found and my grandfather is still living in an apartment over there in a building built on that farm i mean what they did was not great for their marriage you know for their relations tita and 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 uh, pedro but if if what they did is emblematic of what people did in restraining and navigating their passions until they could eventually use that violence to produce something that transcends arbitrary rules and invidious racial categories and unthinking uh, animosity between the North and the South, I mean, between the U.S. and, and Mexico, if that's what they did, that's not a bad ending any more than Jesus's crucifixion is a bad ending. Just wait a few days. <laughs> well, yeah, but you, at the point in the story where, you know, you see uh, Jesus dying, you're like, if, if you don't know he's going to get the revive, you, you would say, hey, this isn't fair. It's not the way it's supposed to go. So people who, you know, first hear of, of Christianity say, you, 
you worship a a, a god who couldn't even defend himself from this how how powerful is that and the thing is is that it it uh, i i was re- i was only complaining about just- it as a romance right is that it, on a romance level, if you're reading it just as a romance novel, there's those kinds of problems. But uh, on a symbolic level, it's interesting. There is a tunnel of light, right? Uh, when they're uh, consuming their their desires at the end. Exactly. And exactly, uh, it's left open, I guess, to interpretation. But well, I'm saying that whether they wind up having a good marriage is not the point. I mean, a good ultimate relationship. It's that their relationship was... As the consummation of their relationship gave something to us. And we are connected to their story through Tita, not Tita, the protagonist, but Tita, the narrator. We're mm-hmm. told in the first pages, I was named after my great aunt, perhaps mm-hmm. because I, too, had a sensitivity to onions, which is the best possible food you could pick if you wanted a metaphor for getting deeper and deeper and deeper into the many, many layers that mm. constitute both the nourishment of that we receive in the world and something that brings tears to us. I've got a half of an onion on top of my head right now to keep me from crying. <laughs> I'm totally going to try that next time. I'm making soup this afternoon. I'll report back. <laughs> okay, let me know. I've tried the bread thing. Did it work you- for you? Yeah, it helps. Yeah, I do. I I I wanted to try the you know the, the thing on the on the head too, but I don't want to have that smell to have to wash out. Yeah. By the way, fun. again, the Spanish. Um, it says that you put a piece of it on the top of your head in the English, if I recall correctly. But in the Spanish, it says you put a piece on the crown of your head, mm. which is again such a wonderful recollection of these other symbolic levels that are going on with, with Christianity. Mm-hmm. Can I ask you a question, Eric, about the translation? I can try I to ask. Just, well, I was just wondering, I noticed that a lot of times when they're describing the moments of where the magic kind of enters in, um, the translation says as if a lot rather than it, like, okay, yeah. as if a strange alchemical process or if you can give me a page in the English, I can um, find parallel. Okay. I've got both books with me in page 52. It's in the March section and it starts as if a strange alchemical process had dissolved her entire being. It's the one that ends with this is how she entered Pedro's body. But mm-hmm. I just wondered if the Spanish was more. Direct. Um, what, as if, that's not the big. What, what does the paragraph begin with? Uh, I'll have to look up. Let's see. Page 52. I wish I'd had the the Spanish because I could have looked it up. Um. Oh, but it was no use. It was no use. Okay. Now and then me... it's in the middle of a paragraph where it says, it was as if a strange alchemical process. And okay, now let me see if I can try to find it in Spanish. Hmm. Um, have you been to Mexico, Jenny? Um, only on like the shoreline with a cruise, not... <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, the tourist part of Mexico, right? But, you know, I grew up in a place where probably 25% of the population was Hispanic, so... Hmm. I've I've only been to Mexico once, but I thought it was uh, it's very... It felt a lot older than... Uh, I mean, it is a lot older than... Especially around here, you know. A mm. uh, hundred years old around here is is old. Right. But Mexico City, you know, there's there's the, the three or four hundred years of 
uh, Europeans, and then there's thousands of years past that. But um, just I, I really like one of the things that struck me, and it's on the cover of this book too, is the sort of Diego Rivera style mural art. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, I mean, I, I was in Mexico City, and so I guess it's probably a lot more common in the capital than it is other places. But it was, it was like there was a lot of sense of uh, civic nationality. Um, we're all in this together, sort of thing. And I, I don't know, you know, how much of that is is propagandistic from the government down or versus um, from the people up. But the the revolution end of the of the book. I mean, the fact that the revolution is so close, uh, one of the revolutions is so close in the past, sort of, you could feel it a lot more, I think, than, you know, the American Revolution is, is more, much more historic, and Canada, of course, never had a revolution, so we, we don't really have that sense of we're all in this together sort of thing. Yeah, I'm sorry. Do you want me to? Yeah, I was just waiting for Eric. I found the the discussion. The the paragraph in Spanish begins, pero era inutil, uh, but it was useless. Um, Whereas here it says it was it was no use. And the sentence um, in question begins in Spanish, tal parafia que en un extraño fenómeno de alquimica su ser se había disuelto in La Salsa de las Rosas. Um, tal parafia um, means it seemed such. Okay, so... Um, okay, so I guess that's similar. It's, it's close to as if, except it leaves out the verb of seemingness. Um, mm-hmm. The Spanish is making it clear that there's someone else doing the uh, recognition, whereas the English doesn't quite get that. But yeah, I guess I was just curious to see if it just described it as if it were actually happening without the as if part. Yeah, there, there is there is the as if notion with Calparathia. There are places I, I really love the fact that uh, that the translators are attempting to capture some of the subtle wordplay of the Spanish, um, and sometimes and it's sort of it's inevitable if languages aren't close enough to each other. Um, uh, they add. Um, puns, for example, where they don't belong, and they mm-hmm. can't capture other puns where they do belong. Um, so, for example, um, there's a place where it says, um, it was useless to hope for Esperanza. Um, and, of course, Esperanza means hope in Spanish, so you turn to the Spanish, and it turns out that it wasn't, it was useless to hope for Esperanza. It's, it was uh, useless to uh, that one forgets about Esperanza. It's gone. Uh, there's another place where there's a pun. Chencha uh, says, uh, Mama Elena is in Pulgatorio. Mm-hmm. Um, and Pulga means flea in Spanish. And it is used metaphorically for little nasty biting, you know, horrible stuff going on all the time. Like, you know, don't sweat the small stuff. Well, that's the small stuff and it's really nasty. Um, and she says Pulgatorio. And they translated it into English just as Pulgatorio to let you know that Chencha um, is not perfect in her language, but you get no sense of the pun involved there. Um, the smallness and pettiness of Mama Elena um, by having been consigned not to Purgatorio, but Pulgatorio. Mm-hmm. So uh, the book really is full of powerful, evocative, 
um, Spanish resonances in the language. And I think, you know, I'm not fluent in Spanish, but um, I, I was 25 years ago, but not now. Um, I, I think the book does a terrific job of conveying a general tone of that level of uh, craftsmanship. But I think that, uh, as with that epigraph, which that's just darn it, you know, they missed the crucial notion of fatedness in that epigraph. There are some places where um, they made trade-offs, and I, I think they didn't quite pull it off. It's a, it's a sort of inevitable when you've got a translation. They almost can never capture everything. But it, it, it seemed fine to me. I mean, it was not um, a heavy-handed translation, as far as I could tell. And I... No, I no, mean, it, no. I, 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 the movie, you know, I, I, translating it to the movie, it became more cartoon-like in the the dialogue, you know, because they had to jam so much into the plot. It reduces from a five-hour book to a two-hour movie, and it, it wasn't quite enough. By the way, the uh, I don't think either of you got the audiobook I, I sent your way, but um, the one I read, I would not recommend as much as the one that's available. Uh, there's two available. One is by Kate Redding, um, who has an American accent, I guess, and um, there's a, an abridged version available on Audible. It's only about an hour shorter, and it's, it's um, read by someone with... Uh, at least Spanish accent, and it's uh, it sounds a lot better in the previews. So might be better to go for the shorter version. The the one thing that I thought kind of ought to be somewhere on our discussion that uh, mm? it does seem to me that it's uh, it's emblematic of the way the book is constructed. That the title is like water for chocolate, which is itself um, a term that comes out of cooking, but it's a term that has an important metaphorical meaning which we are in fact told in the book it means on the verge of boiling over right and that's that's Tita's condition for her whole life after she even before she she gets smitten with Pedro um, she's always feeling constrained in Mapalena's house so I read Wikipedia entry uh, what, what the what people were trying to understand what the title meant in in relation to to it and it was basically an English equivalent would be like hot and bothered right? yeah but hot and bothered usually refers to sex whereas the Spanish yeah. idiom does not necessarily refer to sex it just right. it, it could for example mean um, he was seething with anger right um, it's yeah or yeah. Seething is a good one. Yeah, he's boi- he's boiling over. He's but he's not boiling. quite boiling over. That's the point about the chocolate. Right. right. Because the, the cook has to keep the fire just less than boiling over, or the chocolate doesn't work out right. Mm-hmm. There, there's a there's a whole thread of um, you know, alchemical uh, food chemistry magic sort of thing going on and. The the thing about that struck me about it being a recipe book, right, is that you know it'd be hard to reproduce a lot of the food that's in here using the recipes because there's sort of not quite enough detail on them. And uh, although they sound pretty plausible, the thing is, is always with recipes, right? Recipes are kind of like we do know they work because we can taste them when we taste them. Uh-huh. But we don't know how they're going to work until we do taste them. And it, it's the connection between science uh, is the reproducible 
you know, reproducible results. Um, you know, you write up your, your, um, your findings and you set up, you know, how you did the process and then other scientists can take this information and reproduce your results or find some error in your results and it goes back into the community and suddenly there becomes a way to do something, right? Right. And in food, <laughs> um, we have millions of recipe books, right? And there's a thousand ways to do everything, but there's no consensus on the best way to do any one thing as far as I can tell. You know, the only way to cook chicken as a very way to reproduce the great result of awesome taste is only this way, right? There's so many different ways of doing it, and it doesn't stop us from write, writing new recipe books, does it? Oh, indeed. I, I, I one time uh, wanted to, when my wife was out of town um, and I was in the mood for some hard-boiled eggs, I thought, what is exactly is the best way to do it so that they'll peel easily when you're done? And mm -hmm. I found online, in nominally authoritative sources, eight different ways <laughs> that are guaranteed to be the single most useful. You know, this is the perfect way. No, mm -hmm. this is the perfect way. What can you do? This has been the SFF Audio Podcast. Please join us at www.sffaudio.com.